0: At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, we believe theological education should be confessional. Because of our desire to identify with what Christ has done in his church throughout the centuries, we fully adhere to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. This standard keeps us accountable and preserves us from novelty. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org.
1: Covenant podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective.
0: We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ exalting. Now, let's get started. Thank you for that answer. Um, to transition this part of the conversation forward, We're interested to know about some of the things that Charles and Susie enjoyed doing together in their free time. You mentioned that they read together, they wept together, they prayed together. But what are some things that they did in their free time together?
2: Yeah, good. Uh, They love to walk together. And so they're walking their property and exploring nature. Spurgeon writes about birds. He writes about all, you know, all sorts of things. You, at the Spurgeon Library at Midwestern, you can see some of the books he collected. He's got all this, a lot of books on birds, for example. <laughs> uh, they had cows. They had horses. They, uh, Susie writes about flowers on the property. They, uh, swans that they had in their, uh, their little lake on their last property from 1880 onward. So they walked together. They walked down the street together. The first years of their marriage, she traveled with him a good bit, which was another surprising thing because, uh, you know, they're going across the the, the Alps, uh, some of the mountain passes, and Spurgeon's in his carriage, and you can imagine, you guys love Spurgeon, Spurgeon's talking to his publisher about theology or about books, and <laughs> Susie is not even in the carriage, she's out walking. She must have been really in good shape. During that time, because she would walk during their engagement several miles to meet him at the Crystal Palace uh, in London uh, each week. He would take the train, she would walk. Uh, and she's out in front of these mountain passes, sometimes almost out of sight. And she describes that in her writings, what she's seeing. She loved to travel with him. She was with him when he preached at Calvin's church in Geneva. The only time Spurgeon wore a gown, a robe was in Calvin's church. They required that. And he said, he, you know, he didn't agree with wearing a gown in the pulpit normally, but he said to preach in Spurgeon's and uh, Calvin's pulpit, he'd happily wear that. And he did. I don't know if there are any pictures of that or not. I don't have not seen them. If there are, uh, they were in Venice together, uh, which was wonderful. Uh, when they were in, in, on their honeymoon in Paris, Susie was the tour guide. She spoke French. Spurgeon didn't. And then when you read later letters of Spurgeon, he describes other places that he was then that she was not able to be with him. And, uh, he said, he remembered them being there together. So they, they walked together around the house. They read together, as you mentioned, They spent time together in study. She helped him with the sermons. Even Uh, they traveled together and uh, they wrote each other letters as well. If you want to consider that as something they did together, she was in church with him. No, they were probably not seeing each other very often at church. Uh, because he was so busy and in demand but uh, for the first until 1850, you know, they met in 1854 until 1867. I've looked at the church records there. That's when she, her attendant starts falling off due to her help, but she's there most every Sunday. Also, uh, they worked on some projects together too. As I mentioned, the, uh, that first book during their engagement. And then, uh, she would write for the sword and trowel uh, some. Uh, So they did that kind of stuff together also.
1: You had mentioned a garden earlier, um, but what significance did gardens have in Charles and Susie's relationship?
2: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. That'd be a great blog post for you guys to write uh, as well. Um, Spurgeon loved his gardens he had a uh, a little greenhouse outside of his study and uh, garden areas scattered about he had a gardener he didn't he probably didn't do a lot of gardening himself uh, because of his schedule and because of his health but he had a gardener that he loved like a family member and i remember one very moving scene it's this is recorded in Uh, Pike's six volume biography of Spurgeon where Spurgeon is talking about how he he barely has a minute of his own, And he he says, but, and I have this in the book, I believe, but, but I have my garden. And I, I, pondered that and thought about that a lot that that little garden represented to Spurgeon a, even a moment of refuge, of personal time, of quietness, of creativity, seeing the beauty and wonder of glory of God in creation. And so it was very devotional, in a sense, uh, to him. It was refreshing to his mind. It gives us some sense as well of how busy this man was, that... Uh, just that drop of water, so to speak, in his life when he could spend time in his garden. But he also lamented not being able to spend more time in his garden. He, he wrote a book. He wrote he, His uh, John Plowman's books are uh, filled with stories of nature. He's got a book of, uh, uh, I forget the title of it. I've got it right up here, but a book on nature that he wrote as well. So I would say it's very meaningful. It was meaningful to them together because of the time they would spend together in musing over in their gardens, but also very personally. But I have my garden. Uh, so I think he saw the creativity and the beauty and the quietness and found rest in Christ and rest in the Lord through those times.
0: Mm. Yeah. That's very interesting. You just mentioned that um, – because of his busyness, he likely didn't garden him much himself. And you also mentioned that in the midst of hardships, some couples seem to drift apart, but Susie and Charles seem to drift together. So, in light of those things that you previously said, um, how did Charles's busy schedule affect his marriage?
2: Yeah, um, you know, early in their marriage, he is preaching sometimes twelve times a week. I know how tired I am on Sundays after preaching. (laughs) And, uh, even though I I must say that, and you guys may have this similar experience as pastors. Uh, recently I preached, uh, I think six times in a couple in two days and I never lost any energy. And as long as I'm doing it while I'm doing it, the Lord is giving strength. I can preach all day. Uh, Maybe after this interview, it's like preaching. I'll, I'll probably collapse for a little while. But uh, <laughs> uh, So I'm, I think there is some of that. The Lord is ministering to us as we minister his word. And we're able to do uh, things that you know are challenging. Uh, so he's preaching a lot. She's able to probably go to some of those early in their marriage, but not all of them, obviously. And some of them are taking him outside of the city and he, he, uh, he can't get back home in time. To spend the night, and there's other times he would come in very late. And she describes waiting up uh, for him. Uh, tell me again exactly your question. I got to uh, uh, on the busy side of this of his life a little bit. What was uh, what was your question again?
0: Just how did Charles's busy schedule affect his marriage?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just kind of give you the context of how busy he was, and then the correspondence is uh, off the charts. Uh, there's some reports of him writing. In responding to 500 letters a week uh, dr whitney uh, at southern seminary he, he said that he, he kiddingly said i couldn't tweet 500 tweets a week <laughs> much less five and he, he did the math on how long it would take for spurgeon to write 500 letters if they were just brief letters and i forget if it was eight hours or something just non, if he just non-stop without stopping writing you know maybe eight hours on these but not all of his letters were brief. Some of them were lengthy letters. So just that, he he said he he said it was like a it was nonstop, sermon prep, book editing, uh, the the monthly magazine, sixty institutions, a mega church, the the travel. How did it affect his marriage? So here's a good thing to ponder. I've had some folks push back against some of the things I've said in my books because I cast Spurgeon as a really good husband, a godly husband. I believe he was. I stick I stick to my guns, And I say that not because I want to just defend Spurgeon. I say that because I look at his wife. And what I see in her is a happy, a happily married wife who treasure her husband. There's no, I found no indication of any complaints at all that she expressed. She probably wouldn't have expressed them. But I mean, the more you study a person, you kind of can pick up on if they're unhappy. She missed him. She was lonely. She was anxious over him. But she determined in their engagement period uh, on her own that she would never hinder him in his public ministry. In fact, there's a story of him speaking at an event out of town and she takes ill. This is before the most serious of her illnesses. And they think she's going to die. And she's able to get a telegram to Spurgeon uh, and says, don't come home. Stick with your ministry. Now that's that's tough. Uh, you know. And I guess the debate is, should he have come home anyway, regardless of what she said, but he knew his wife, he knew their marriage. He struggled. He stayed. Uh, so one, one person reviewing the book didn't appreciate that about Spurgeon that he stayed or that if someone said, well, how can he be such a, you say he's such a good husband. How can he be a good husband? He's gone this often. And then later in his life from about 1871 until he died in 1892, that's a long period, you know, 20 years. He's He's gone sometimes three months a year just for recovery to Montan, France. Um, and she can't go. The nature of his affliction demands that he goes to warmer weather, get out of London during the winter months. The nature of her affliction is she can't travel and they're separated. And he, he writes her every day. Guys, I don't know if you, are I didn't even ask you if you're married or not. If you, you are, okay. So uh, when you travel, when you're away from your wife, do you take a dip pen and write her a letter and put a stamp on it every day? <laughs> you guys are shaking your head no. Do you, I mean, do you contact her every day? Probably, right? Some sort of contact. Uh, But Spurgeon is writing her a letter every day, which is a lot more than sending out a uh, text or making a quick phone call. He couldn't do any of those things. So I don't think that uh, I think it affected their marriage and that they both were lonely for each other. Spurgeon would write these letters to her and he would talk about something he had seen and experienced. And he would say, oh, that you were here. Oh, that you were here. I wish you were here. I wish you were here. That tells me they had a happy marriage too. What, why would he be wanting her to be there if you know their, their marriage is unhappy? They wanted to be together, both of them. She prospered in her ministry. He prospered in his. It wasn't hers or his. They saw their ministry as theirs together so it was very hard and just as i mentioned i don't think we can overestimate how important she was in general i don't think that even my book has my books have uh, communicated enough the level of sacrifice that she made because she loved the lord jesus and his ministry and she loved her husband devotedly And the way they talked about each other, the the descriptors, some of them are sort of make you blush a bit, you know, Uh, he talked about daydreaming of her (laughs) when he was away. Uh, They had a tender marriage. So uh, I don't want to take away from how difficult that must have been for them both when she had surgery uh, and she was, they were separated during that time as well. She was in Brighton. He was in London uh, he sent her, he had to, they they were moving. He picked out the furniture. He he sent her a letter and a biscuit can, <laughs> a tender love letter and a biscuit can. I mean, he just was like that. Uh, so I'm happy with their marriage. You know, uh, now I don't know that we need to say, well, Spurgeon, we don't need to go tell our wife. You know, Spurgeon was gone all this time good for me to be gone. You know, we we have our own marriages. We have our own contacts. we have our own time in history that God's placed us in. So no one should interpret this to mean guys, especially, you know, I, uh, that's what I need to do or that's okay for me to do that. We need to make sure where our priorities are and then make sure that we're on the same page of music with our spouse.
1: I had a preaching professor at RTS and he talked about how Charles Spurgeon would prepare his sermons on the eve that he was going to preach them. Um, and then he said, none of you are Spurgeon. So I think that's <laughs> important to remember for us. And, and related to that, um, could you tell our listeners about the role Susie played in helping Charles prepare his sermons?
2: Yeah, and the it's true, partly, that he, he put his sermons together on the eve, on Saturday night. And that's what most people think, you know, and that's true. He did that. But remember, he's in the Word all week long. He's reading six substantive books a week. Six. I mean, he's like the Al Mohler of his day. You know? <laughs> Only Mohler reads more, I think, than Spurgeon, uh, from what I can gather. But six not pamphlets. He's reading that stuff beyond the six books a week. Um, so how does she help him? So he so all that to say, his heart is ripe to prepare his sermon on Saturday. But, it, but it's, I think it was at six o'clock on Saturday. He entertained people all day Saturday. Uh, their home was Hospitality Central, especially on the Saturdays. But at six o'clock, he'd say, See you later, guys. Uh, I'm, and he would go into his study. They could, I guess they could stay or they could leave. Spurgeon was leaving. He'd go into his study, shut the door. And typically, this is the way it would work. He would be in there working for a while, thinking, praying about what to preach. I mean, like I, I know typically uh, what I'm going to preach next week. Uh, I, I know it in advance. I know kind of where I'm going to be. I'm preaching through books of the Bible typically. The summer I'm preaching topically, which is unusual for me, and a lot harder for me to preach just topical messages than I'm going through a book. Spurgeon didn't typically go through books like that. Um, So he was thinking of a topic and praying. And he was really, he had a a very robust, lively view of the Holy Spirit ministering to him in his study uh, at that hour, giving and pressing upon him the message he was to preach. But it would, After a while, he would say, Susie, uh, only not in a Georgian accent like I have, (laughs) Uh, and he would call her into his study, and he would say, you know, and I'm uh, greatly uh, interpreting and paraphrasing here, go to shelf five in the west corner of my study and pull out book number seven, Thomas Brooks or, or Thomas Watson or whomever, and bring it over and and read this section to me. I mean, he knew his books and he knew where stuff was located in his books. And a lot of times he had books open all over his desk, his table. And so she would, he would say, read this and read this. And so she'd be reading commentaries, which by the way, was very helpful for her as well as him because she is excluded from church uh, because of her sickness uh, by again by 1868 at least so this is where she's being ministered to and there's no on there no live stream or any of that stuff going on back then um, Though Spurgeon probably would have taken advantage of, of technology I think another question so that's why she would help him she would read read to him uh, books as you may have noted, this story has been told a thousand times before in other books. I tell it in yours till heaven one night, he just couldn't get it. And he came in and said, I don't know what I'm going to do. So he wake me up early in the morning so I can work on a sermon. I've been looking at this passage all night and I, I don't understand it. And she says, don't worry about it. You know, I will wake you up. And so Spurgeon goes to sleep and Sometime in the night, she hears him talking in his sleep, and she realizes he's not just talking; he's preaching the passage that he'd been wrestling with. And somehow, uh, she's able to to get that and remember that, and she lets him sleep till his normal time the next morning. <laughs> and when she does wake him up, or he wakes up, he's upset. Susie, what am I gonna do? It's uh, you know it's time to go to church. She says, let me tell you what happened last night. And she gives him the sermon, which he in turn preaches that morning. And you can read that sermon as well uh, in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. So that was an unusual way that she helped him. She has a great memory recall, repeated that sermon. Uh, And he would often say that, you know, he would ask her to suggest text to him. And he would say to her kiddingly later, he said, you know, Susie, you gave me that text that I preached today. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm.
0: Well, we're starting to wind this conversation down and you've alluded to this previously. What can we learn from how Susie responded after her husband, Charles, passed?
2: Yeah. And she didn't know what she was going to do initially. Now, again, some of the things about their marriage sounds really strange in 2021. Uh, Miraculously, the last trip Spurgeon ever made to monton he didn't know it would be his last. He usually would get down there, get a little bit better, come back and minister again. This is October of 1891. The Lord gives Susie strength. So his longtime dream of having her with him comes true. And I think it's really miraculous. She makes the journey, a long, long journey. They always call it a thousand mile journey. I've never actually calculated the miles, but they call it a thousand mile journey to Montan. Horses, carriages, boats, train, uh, all involved. And they have what she describes as three months of perfect happiness. Uh, he gets better. She, he's showing her around. Uh, there's there's a place called Hanbury Gardens where they go and they're walking through a passageway. I've got pictures of that in the Susie book uh, because in December, they're walking it together. He's in a wheelchair, I think. Uh, and in February, she's back on that path walking it alone because he dies January 31st, 1892. Spurgeon dies. There's a memorial service held at the Presbyterian Church where he often attended in Montan. And uh, his body is shipped back to London. But here's what sounds weird to modern ears, I think, is that Susie does not return with his body. And we can only uh, conjecture why that is. I think it's probably because of her own affliction and her grief is too much for her to make that journey back. So she goes to stay at this place called Hanbury Gardens, which is just across the Italian border. Montan is in France. Uh, the gardens is in just across the Italian border. And she stays there, with, which is owned by friends of Spurgeon, in this beautiful mansion. The blue seas of the Mediterranean crashing on the, the foot of the Maritime Alps there. If you ever get a chance to go, by all means, don't say no. If someone says, hey, I want to send you to Montan," we got to go. And it's as beautiful as Spurgeon described it. I know why he wanted to go there. It's the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my my life. Um, So while she is there, staring out over that Mediterranean Sea, contemplating her future, she says, what would God have me to do? Uh, There was money in the book fund. The need was great. Her heart was burdened. She said, I will continue the book fund. That is what God would have me to do. So she goes back to London and she there's powerful scenes of her sitting behind Spurgeon's desk, using his pens, looking at his books and thinking of him, picture of him hanging in his study. Uh, and her praying at his chair, really powerful scenes there, renewing her commitment to help poor pastors and their wives and children. Sometimes she helped with clothing and money and other items along with the books. She continued that until she died. And then, like I said, it continued on beyond her death. She worked with the sword and trial. She planted the church. She wrote books. Did this audit. So the, the she raised money for the, the metropolitan tabernacle, which burned under Thomas Spurgeon's ministry called fire. Just gutted, it the uh, metropolitan tabernacle building you see today is very different Uh, the the front is similar is much of the same that's about it and maybe the foundation but inside is nothing the same it burned. susie raised a ton of money just her presence sick at the metropolitan tabernacle sitting in this this gutted out building people came by making pledges to rebuild it um So the lesson in all that is she, we haven't, think about this guys, think about this, Jimmy and Austin, you got, you're young. And I don't know how many, maybe you've done surveys, you know, you've thought it through what kind of guy is a church planter, which kind of person does this, that, and the other, but typically on the list, for example, in the North American mission board, they probably don't have a category as a church planter for an elderly widow who is sick, right? That's not the normal, that doesn't, that doesn't meet sort of the, uh, uh, the guidelines. She didn't quit. There's sometimes she could not raise her hand. The pain was so bad. She would be in her bed for extended periods of time. But She wrote letters, sent out books, supported the planting of this church, actually chose the pastor as well. Um, supported Spurgeon's ministries, raised money for the tabernacle, and kept the faith. And it's amazing to me because she did the sort of things as an afflicted, widowed, lonely woman. She did more than I, I do. Uh, who, who I'm able to go out jogging every day, I'm able to do sit-ups and push-ups. I'm able to, uh, even though I'm almost sixty years old. I mean, as far as I know, I'm in good good health. Uh, She accomplished more as a widow afflicted, I think, than I do uh, as a healthy guy today. (laughs) So uh, don't quit, keep the faith. So what, you know, maybe there's someone listening to your podcast that's afflicted. And the lesson isn't necessarily go do what Susie did because you've got your own context, your own circumstances, but do what you can do. I remember talking to a sweet, godly widow lady one time. And she was apologizing to me. She said, I'm sorry, I cannot come to church. She says, all I can do is pray for you. And I said, ma'am, all you can do is come before the throne of almighty God, the creator of the universe and pray for me. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Please keep doing that. Do what you can, all that you can, as long as you can for the glory of God and the the good of others. God will bless that. Keep the faith. The lesson to all of us is to come alongside people like that. How many of us know widow lady in the Bible says true religion is to, to care for widows and orphans in their distress. That was at the heart of Spurgeon's ministry. You had a home for widows. He had two homes, the girls' home and boys' homes for orphans. Uh, We can come alongside the afflicted, as Susie and Charles did, and we can minister to them as they did.
1: Amen. And striking a similar note to that, to wrap up our discussion, do you have any additional final thoughts or encouragements pertaining to Charles, Susie, or marriage?
2: Yeah, uh, Today, I'm, you know, I'm on my last lap. There's a new book out called The Gun Lap. I need to get that. It's about the last lap of a man's life. <laughs> uh, you guys are at the, on the first lap, running the race. And you guys are encountering, we all are encountering it, but you guys are f- facing it in the early stages of a culture that seems to be really upside down. And not only just the culture at large, but evangelical culture. It seems to be really confused on, you know, uh, on even the sufficiency of the Bible. For example, I would just encourage pastors and anyone else that knows the Lord Jesus. You can trust the scriptures. That's what Spurgeon was saying at the end of his life when people were deviating from fundamental theological truths. He was saying God's word is sufficient. God's word is true. It is authoritative. It's infallible. Trust the word. Uh, our, the folks that we minister to need the word of God. So Charles and Susie tell us to pray the word, read the word, meditate on the word, preach the word, write the word, read the word, and and then collect and share resources similar to that. So Read the Bible individually, pray individually, meditate individually, read the Bible together with your spouse and have family worship with your family, your children. Cast your anchor on the solid rock of Christ and the gospel. Christ said that you, know, all, the, you know, all of this, the, the knowledge and the sciences of the universe and, and uh, everything else, it has a center, and the center is Christ. Uh, make Christ your center, and you'll be following after the example of Charles and Susie, who was everything. I challenge you pick up one of your Spurgeon volumes today, read a page, and you will come away knowing something about the beauty and wonder of Christ and the glory of the gospel. That's what they were about.
1: Yep. Amen. Um, we have been talking with Ray Rhodes about his. Book Yours Till Heaven, The Untold Love Story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. Thank you for coming onto the podcast, Ray.
2: Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, Austin. It was a pleasure being with you.
1: And to our listeners, we wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog mastery at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.